This morning we begin the third sermon in our series dealing with Revelation. The first one, Nick did an overview of Revelation chapter 1 and this cosmic vision that John sees of Jesus. And then last week he spoke about the first church, the church in Ephesus, and their lack of authentic love. And this week we'll be talking about the church in Smyrna. Now, if you're a visitor here this morning and you're wondering, well, their pastor's on sabbatical and they decided to assign everyone else the book of Revelation to preach on for eight weeks, before you begin to think that our pastor is cruel or our leadership is cruel, let it be known that he preached Song of Solomon before he left. So there is no room for complaining. And it just goes to show, which I'm so thankful, that we believe every word is inspired by God. Every word. So, when we come to the church of Smyrna, there's some background information that's necessary for us to know, to learn a little bit about Smyrna before we hop into this text. We'll go through the text, see some of the points from it, and then we'll move from there to see how it applies to us as individual believers, and how it applies to us specifically as Christ Covenant Church here in Raleigh, North Carolina. So, Smyrna. It was a city that was very proud of its government. It was a city that was very loyal to Rome. They uh, pledged allegiance to Rome. They were very patriotic. Uh, They claimed and boast uh, to be one of the first cities to build an idol to Rome, a temple to Rome in 165 B.C. And it was the kind of city, too, where it was rumored that if the people didn't have enough money to go buy sacrifices for the emperor to worship the emperor, pay honor to the emperor, then the city would actually take some of its public funds and give it to them to be able to go do that to pay honor to the emperor and to Rome. So a loyal city to Rome. And also, during this time, we have to remember that this is a tense time in church history. For a while in this moment, the Christians, the new converts, those who have realized that Jesus is the true Israel, the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for, they operate under the umbrella of Judaism which kind of had a, um, a relationship with Rome that allowed them to be able to uh, be a monotheistic religion, a place where they could worship Yahweh as the one true God, pay honor to Caesar and to Rome, but they kind of had a religious exemption clause. They weren't expected to go full-out worship into the emperor. And so Christians were able to kind of slide under that umbrella, work within the synagogues as we see Paul doing in Acts, going in there and preaching the gospel, and they could hide under that or work in those areas to be able to give the gospel and not fear having to worship Caesar or giving homage to Caesar. But the Jews want to call them out for it and start pointing out that they are not like us, they are a sect, they have gone wrong, they have messed up, they are not of us, and they wanted to make a very clear case that the Christians were a very different thing from the Jews and did not deserve the respect and the religious freedom that the Jews had to worship Caesar. And so that's the context we find ourselves in, where the Christians are being pushed out of hiding or being under the umbrella of Judaism, and now they're going to be kind of faced on their own to deal with the government and to deal with the powers and uh, to face it. And will they compromise or will they stand firm? And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, Now, before we even begin moving into this verse and what Jesus is going to say to them, it is so important the way Jesus addresses himself. The first and the last. Now, obviously it's referring back to John chapter 1, verse 19, but also these words should 
harken us back to something even further in Scripture, something that a Jewish person would have known, something that if we were steeped in our Old Testament history, we would instantly be able to think of where is this verse taking us? Where is it leading us to? What is it pointing us to? It's one of those references that he doesn't have to give a full explanation of it. You should know where it's at in the context. It's just a shorthand remark, like when someone says it was a, um, a terrible failure, like the Titanic. You don't have to sit there and start expressing what the Titanic was, what happened. Or it's like saying, you know, he's like the Dark Lord Voldemort in the Lord of the Rings series. Wait, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. But you know who Voldemort is, right? He's the Dark Lord of Harry Potter. So it's a shorthand remark to make you think about something that is a far greater picture. And so let us turn quite quickly to Isaiah chapter 44 to see what is he referencing when he calls himself the first and the last. Because every church that Jesus addresses, he pulls from John chapter 1 something that he said about himself. And usually what he's saying to the church kind of lines up with the mission or the purpose of why he's speaking to them. Maybe their struggle or their need. And so why would he address Smyrna with this language? Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, or Yahweh, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And there is no God besides Me. Who is like Me? Let Him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Jesus, when he references, I am the first and the last, it clearly is pointing back to this in Isaiah, this imagery of God, this imagery of the one who says there is no one like me. I am the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, we see this language. I am the one who can tell the nations what will happen because I'm the one who helped write history. I'm the one, uh, all things were created through, by Him, for Him, and to Him. All things were created through Me. So Jesus is giving to the church in Smyrna this magnificent, glorious picture of He's not just someone who may know what they're going through, but He's someone who is the God over all of history. He is fully divine. He knows all things. He's all-powerful. He is God. There is no one like Him. It is sometimes uh, we fail to apply this imagery of Jesus imagining Him saying, there is no God besides Me. Who is like Me? And so the church of Smyrna is given this as their intro, as their way of thinking about Him before He even tells them about what's going to happen to them. They're giving this massive picture, this cosmic vision of Jesus is God. And He's the one who rules over the nations. He was the one who was dead and has come to life. Verse 9. Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation, or your affliction, and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, who's our enemy in this passage? Now, in verse 9, it says that it's a those who say they are Jews and are not. Now this passage is full of irony, like verse 8, God who was dead and now came to life. It's full of this irony of those who claim they are Jews, but they are not. And John is very clear throughout Revelation that a child of God is not one ethnically, 
but he's won by faith in Christ. That's why when you flip over just a few pages in Revelation chapter 7, the people of God, myriads and myriads of them, are those who are represented by every tongue, tribe, and nation who are covered in the robes of Christ. So one is not a true Jew by his ethnicity, but one is a true Jew by his faith in Christ, the true Israel. And so they claim to be Jews, but they are not. But they are a synagogue of Satan. I think it's extremely important to remember that when we think about our enemy, of course we have the individual right in front of us, maybe the religious institution or the person or the government that's afflicting us, but there's also a war that's unseen, and our enemy is Satan. Satan who we all were once enslaved to, right? And this isn't foreign to us. Remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and he drops this line that, would have made everyone stop in their place when he says to the Pharisees, why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. These Jews that are persecuting the church of Smyrna that they're using religion to persecute the group of Christians, we find out that they're really a synagogue of Satan. And we'll see later that it's Satan, the one that takes them and throws them into prison. They're enslaved to Satan. The language in Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So see, we all, before placing our faith in Christ, were bound to Satan and to his rule. Under slavery to Satan, we were his pawn. We were doing what he desired. We acted out of what our father was, was Satan, the father of lies. We were a murderer. We were deceptive. We were wicked. Fully responsible. Fully responsible for our sin, but enslaved to him as well. We had no ability to do anything else but sin. So when we think about our enemies, of course we have a present reality of those who are in front of us, but we should always remember what Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the church in Smyrna is reminded of this, aren't they? Interestingly enough, it says that I know your tribulation and your poverty. They were poor. They were struggling. They were being slandered by these Jews. They were being ostracized in society. It can make one think about the verses in Revelation chapter 13 when it says that the beast, he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. No indication if that's a credit card or anything like that, but he just they have a mark. They have a mark that distinguishes them as those of the beast. And those who have this mark, are those he, and he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So there is coming a time, and maybe they were already facing it to some degree, that they were being ostracized economically in the marketplace. They were facing poverty because of their faith in Christ, which should make us 
stop for a moment and think, what would it look like if I had my faith in Christ and that would cause me or cost me to see my son miss a meal? What would that look like to face persecution to that degree where the family is struggling every night to figure out how they're going to have food because of their faith in Christ? So they're in poverty, they're being slandered, they're being torn apart, and they're being ostracized in society. And we see that it's by the Jews, but also there's another element to this. It is they're cast into prison. Now, as far as I know, the Jews, um, they had not really a good prison system. They actually used, they partnered up with Rome, which is what we see with Jesus, right? They take him in and they question him for a little bit, but then they hand him over to Pilate and to Roman authorities to handle the judicial process. And so we see a collaboration here of the Jews, religious institution, working with the government, and both are attacking the church of Smyrna. Both are working together, and it's exactly what happened to Christ too. The affliction. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Now, why ten days? Let's move to that. Why ten days? Well, it makes you think back to Daniel, right? When Daniel and them were given a time where they were uh, to be trained up before the king to be prepared to be presented to him as a wise, as the wise youth, and Daniel and them don't want to eat from the king's court because of religious purposes, because they want to not put themselves under the king's authority or look like they're worshiping the king or being under the king, so they decide to be distinguished from the king. They decide to separate themselves from the king to the point where they go for 10 days, we're not going to eat the food of the king, but we're just going to eat vegetables. And the dude's like, I, I don't know, man. I know veganism is popular right now, but this is probably not the best path for you. And they're like, no. We're going to trust the Lord. He will provide for us. And for 10 days, this trial happened. And it's mentioned twice in Daniel. So many people argue that this is what it's bringing us back to, which would make sense in the context, right? A government that is overpowering the Jewish people, a government that is or attacking God's people, and Daniel and them have to make a choice. Will they compromise? Will they worship? Will they bow down to Nebuchadnezzar? Or will they stand in their faith? They have to figure out when is the line of compromise or when is the line of standing firm. And so, it brings us back to Daniel and the affliction they were having. And it also, when we read in, verse chap- in chapter 10, it says, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation. You will be tested and you'll have affliction. When we think about testing, all of this is happening to the church of Smyrna in order that their affliction, their poverty, their imprisonment, as it's building up, it's all happening to test them. Now, this testing, God in no way, He is light and there is no darkness in Him at all. God does not tempt, as James says. God may test, but He does not tempt. And these people are being tested, right? Nothing different than what we see in Luke chapter 22 with Peter, right? And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And listen to Peter's language, so interestingly connected to what we have in Smyrna. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the, ro- the rooster will cr- not crow today until you have denied three times 
that you know me. So these believers, they're going to be tested. Will they be faithful or will they not when they face this tribulation? And notice how it uh, amplifies. Notice how it goes from you're in poverty now, I know it. You're being slandered right now, I know it. You're being attacked. You're being ostracized in the marketplace and social settings. You're barely figuring out how to get food on the table. But here comes the next thing. The devil's going to grab some of you and he's going to put you into prison. And you're going to be in prison for 10 days. Now, is it literally 10 days? No, it's probably symbolic. The testing like we spoke about in Daniel. But it's for a time. And then you have to be faithful until death. Faithful until death. The idea of Smyrna being faithful until death should, actually no, it shouldn't, unless you're like a church history nerd. I'm, it should make you think, or if you've ever heard of it, the story of Polycarp. Has anyone ever heard the story of Polycarp, who was a bishop of Asia Minor? And Polycarp was um, 86 years old when we go into this story, and he was martyred probably around the mid-2nd century, so around 165, 150, somewhere around in there. And he would have been a guy who, um, maybe if he didn't have interactions with the disciples because he would have been a baby, but his parents definitely would have maybe known the disciples. They would have heard this. They could have been the original hearers of the recipient of the letter when it came, when Smyrna was told that I know your affliction and your poverty. But Polycarp is this 86-year-old man who's a bishop of the churches. He's a pastor. He's teaching Christian doctrine. And it comes about that Rome and the city of Smyrna want to grab this man. They want to take him into custody. 86-year-old man. And so they decide to send a security detail led by none other than the, the leading, uh, we'll call him police officers. His name was Herod, of all things, ironic. And he is chasing down Polycarp, and Polycarp hears of them coming, and they move to another house, and when they get to the second house, Polycarp's praying, and he, he has a vision that he's going to be burned to death, and then the security detail catches up to Polycarp at the second house, and they said, you can still escape, and he says, no, this is my time. But when the security detail came in, he asked, could he have just one hour of time to pray undisturbed. And they consented and they gave it to him. I mean, it's an 86-year-old man. They're coming in with these weapons to capture him. And they get there and they're like, this, this may not be, I mean, we didn't need this M16 right now. And so they show up and they give him the hour to pray, but he ends up going for two hours. And they don't stop him. And he was so full of grace, so full of an aroma that they didn't understand. And so they take him back to Smyrna to, the, uh, to be put before the proconsul. And the captain tries to persuade him, why don't you just recant? Why can't you just say Caesar is Lord? Why can't you do it? And he says, I can't. And so he's brought before the proconsul, and they tell him, Polycarp, just deny your faith. They say, tell the people away with the atheists. And for a time, Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in the pantheon of gods, and they didn't certainly believe that the emperor was a god, so they were ones who were called, they didn't believe in God. And so Polycarp, he looks at the crowd and he sees a crowd full of ruthless, lawless men who just chase after their pastors and he motions with his hand and he says, away with the atheists. And they said, Polycarp, sincerely recant your faith. And he says this to the proconsul: For 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? stands before these rulers and authorities, these men of great power in the government, and he says, how can I turn against my king? So then they threaten him some more, 
And they threaten him, we'll give you to the beast. He says, that's fine. They said, we'll burn you. And he says, you threaten with a fire that burns only briefly. And after just a little while, it is extinguished. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. And so he says this to them. And it's almost that whole Paul thing, uh, to live as Christ, to die as gain. There's nothing they can do to stop his faith. There's nothing they can do that can thwart him or scare him out of it. He is remaining faithful before this group. And so, finally, when they decide they will burn him to death, he refuses to be nailed to the wood. He says, leave me as I am, for the one who enables me to endure the fire will also enable me to remain on the pyre without moving, even without the sense of security that you get from the nails. And so they tie this 86-year-old man to the wood. And before they set to burn him, he has a prayer. And part of the prayer is this. He says, I bless you, God, because you have considered me worthy of this day and hour, so that I might receive a place among the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. For this reason, indeed for all things, I praise you, I bless you. I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom be the glory to you with Him and the Holy Spirit, both now and for the ages to come. Amen. He was faithful until death. And his martyrdom has been passed down throughout church history. And he was martyred in Smyrna. No doubt he would have heard from his parents when they first were being afflicted and facing tribulation what it was like preparing him for his time and his moment. And even when he's being bound and going to be burned to death, realizing ministry will be cut short. Um, well, he was 86. I don't know how much more it would be cut short. But realizing that death was coming, <laughs> he still was faithful. He still was faithful. Jesus says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life now, when we read these verses, be faithful until death. It's a little bit different than maybe the prosperity gospel where we would hear maybe be faithful until the Porsche arrives. Be faithful until your bank account balloons up. Be faithful. But it says be faithful until death. And often we may think, well, the prosperity gospel is so ridiculous. We don't buy into it at all. And maybe materially we don't. But sometimes emotionally I think we do. I'm going to be faithful, God, for just this next month, but you'll bring me out of this pit of depression, right? I'm going to be faithful for the next month, but you'll do this for me, right, God? Be faithful until your time of affliction is over. And if that's till death, be faithful. And it's not for all, is it, this faithful until death? It says that some of you will be thrown into prison. Some of you will be killed. And then they will receive the crown of life. So, what are some points of encouragement we can get from this passage? What are some points that can stick with us as we think about persecution and remaining faithful in light of if the government's attacking us or a religious institution is attacking us? How can we find encouragement from this passage? Where is it at? Well, no doubt it's in the opening, right? It's in the opening where Jesus says, I am the first and the last. He claims full divinity. He is the beginning and He is the end. There, he is eternal. There is no end to Him. He is God. There is none like Him. He predicts the end from the beginning. And so that's why when He can say in verse 9, I know your tribulation. There's a comfort there. He's not left in the dark. He knows what's going on. He's fully aware. He's omniscient God. And then when He can say, do not fear what you're about to suffer, they can find hope 
right? Because he is knowing what's coming their way. He's in charge of history. This isn't going to surprise him. This isn't going to catch him off guard. He is in charge. He is in control. So encouragement on one front would be that he is God, fully God. His omniscience and his omnipotence should comfort us. There's nothing to fear. He is all-powerful. Another point that this passage reminds us of that should encourage us is that persecution is temporary, right? It's not forever. Think of what Jesus says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Don't fear the ones who can punish just the body and it's only temporary. Fear the one who can eternally bring about wrath for your disobedience and for your rebellion and lack of repentance and trusting in Christ. So our punishment is temporary. I think of all the persecution the church faces, of all the trials that may come our way, of all the things that have happened in church history and of all the things that could happen to us, I think as terrible as those things are, as horrific as some of the acts of being in poverty, how terrible that would be, facing slander, being put in prison and being up to the point of death, as terrible as all that is, I think facing persecution and affliction without knowing who's in control, what the outcome's going to be, who's going to win, what's it going to look like, I think that is far more terrifying than the actual persecution. And thankfully, we have Christ who is the first and the last. And he says, I know and do not fear. And then be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. An encouragement for the enduring of faithfulness is to trust Christ. There is good news. Because, see, we get a crown of life because Christ took on a crown of thorns on our behalf. We can face the persecution because Christ faced it before us. He was the forerunner of it. We are united with Christ and we know that even in our death we'll be raised to life, which is why baptism is such a beautiful picture, being brought down in the waters of judgment and then being raised to life. Because we are in Christ, we know that we will receive a crown of life because He's purchased it for us. A crown of life. And we have no fear of death. Death has lost its sting. And this is a crown that, that is imperishable. This is a crown that will never fade. This is a crown that will never um, lose its value because it's been purchased by Christ as opposed to all the many other crowns in this life we could chase after. Business success, um, sports success, good reputation, whatever it may be. This is a crown of life that will not fade. But we have to be faithful until death. And theologically, there's some encouragement from this passage too. This idea of perseverance of the saints, right? This idea that, as Peter said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who? the saints, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The saints are protected by the power of God. Protected by Him. 
Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus will protect His sheep. Jesus will help them persevere. That is good news. That is really good news. That God is the author of my salvation and God is the one who will bring me to the end. He is the one who will protect me. Satan and his synagogue will not thwart me. But you've got to be sitting here thinking, wait a minute, that, 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 that is absolutely true and that is, that is true and that is good, but what about when we fail to be faithful? What about when we fail to be faithful? Do we then not get the crown of life? I would say this testing, as we see in Scripture, we can go right back to the story of Peter, right? Peter in his moment, his, I mean, this is the epic moment where he's going to be tested. He's seeing Jesus. He can see Him being before this council. He can see Him being beaten. He can see Him being spit upon. And he has a moment to affirm that, yes, I follow Him. And this great moment of testing. And what does Peter do? He doesn't just, I mean, have one moment and fail, but he fails three times. And so in his failure, it can either prove that he was not of us, or it can refine him and he repent and run to Christ. And we see in the Gospel of John this beautiful picture when they realize that the Lord, when Jesus is on the shore and he's cooking fish, and they say, it's the Lord, and Peter doesn't say, come on guys, let's paddle. No. Peter, a grown man, jumps into the water and swims as fast as he can to get to the Lord. He's repented and he's came to him. He realized he has failed to be faithful. But Christ's blood is sufficient to cover for all of our sins, even in our moments when we're unfaithful, even in our moments where we don't speak up when we should, in the moments where we run, as John Luther prayed, when we run from the opportunity to speak of Christ. Or we're in a setting because we rationalize, well, wait a minute, I've got to build a relationship with this person and then I can share the gospel with them. Even though you have a burning in your bones to share it with them, you rationalize it. Or you think, well, this is going to take time. We've got to build this up. Or, you know what, they're not ready for this. Or this could cause a reaction. My son could get kicked off of this team. Or this could happen. And we start going down this road and we fail to be faithful when He's called us to be faithful. So our testing... This moment where we either are faithful to the Lord or we fail. For some of us, it can be a time of authenticating or validating and giving us assurance of our faith when we're faithful. And others of us, when we failed, it can either refine us or it can prove that we were not of the sheep of God, which hopefully would lead us to repentance. So Christ's covenant. How does this apply to us starting just individual believers. Where is the application for us? Where do you feel the most tension to be faithful when persecution will result from it? What context is it where you feel your palms start to be sweaty, when you feel like your mind's racing, I should speak, but I don't know when. Where is it in your life or in those friendships or relationships that you feel the pressure? If I speak of the gospel, if I speak of the truth, I know I'll be persecuted. I know I'll either be slandered, I'll be made fun of, it might cost me something. Where is it? Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If your mind's racing as you reread this text, and you're going, you know what, John? I, I can't think of the last time I was made fun of for being a Christian. Or, you know, I, I really can't think of any type of affliction I've ever faced for being a Christian. Does this passage call us to run into the streets and have up the signs and start saying, I'm a Christian, punch me, do something, I need affliction. No. But it does teach us that when the time comes, when affliction heads our way, we must be faithful. But we have to wonder, when we live in a world where Satan is the prince, where darkness is all around, deception is all around, craftiness and lies is all around, and we are those who worship the truth, we have a worldview that is of the truth. It inevitably has to clash with the world in every sphere of life, doesn't it? In the way you raise your kids, in the way you may um, do your nightly routine as a family, the way you may school your kids, the way you may do all these different things, there's a worldview behind it. And every day we're interacting with people in the marketplace and social relationships in our families where we have a worldview that hopefully is aligned with Scripture and with the truth and they are under the slavery of Satan and they're bound to lies and at some moment those truths, those things have to collide. And it's not a just soft passing by but it has to be a collision. And if we can look at our life and we see no affliction, we see no slander, we see no punishment that comes our way, we have to wonder, have I spoken much of my Lord? Have I been like Jeremiah? I don't boast in my riches, I don't boast in my wisdom, I don't boast in my strength but I do boast in God and in His wisdom, and in His might. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Are we speaking the truth? When God brings the moment our way, are we being faithful? Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, as He was speaking to the disciples on the last night in before he goes into the high priestly prayer, he says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. As believers, we will face affliction. So, what should we do as individuals? We should examine ourselves. Examine where are the relationships where we're failing to be faithful where are the moments and the places and the settings where we are not seeking out to speak of Christ and to boast of Him and the truth of the Gospel we have in His Word? And we should also step back and think as a church, if persecution is promised, if we will face it, how are we preparing for it? We're blessed that by God's grace in this season we have peace here worshiping in Raleigh, North Carolina in the United States, that we have freedom to gather, freedom to preach, freedom to study God's Word. Maybe it's we're given this passage today to sear in our mind this image of Christ as the one who's earned us the crown of life. For when the day comes, it could come as quick as, uh, the, you know, quick as whatever. I don't have a good analogy off the top of my head. You guys just put in the blank there. It could come quickly. Affliction. Do you trust in Christ? Will we be prepared for it? 
will this passage be seared in our mind's eye that Christ is in control of the first and the last. Or maybe it's put into us to remind us that these letters aren't just for uh, the individual church, but for the universal church, that we have brothers and sisters in North Korea, in China, who are facing persecution, slander, and poverty, ostracized for their faith. Church, let us test ourselves. Let us see, are we failing to be faithful? Where are we failing to be faithful? And let us repent of it and trust in Christ. And let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Those of us who trust in Christ, he is victorious. He has overcome. He was faithful for us. So let us cling to him and his righteousness for when we stand before God on that day of judgment. Take a moment, church, and let us reflect. Let us reflect about, as a church, where are ways we've been tested? Where are ways we should prepare to be tested? As individuals, where are areas that we have been faithful and we can rejoice? Our moments just this week where we have failed to be faithful. And let us beg God to help us to see that we need Christ and His righteousness to be faithful. And let us rejoice that He was faithful for us. So take a moment of silence and reflect upon that, and then an elder will close us in prayer.